medicine today. This is John Murphy and it's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast Dr. Yoram Vodovots. Dr. Vodovots is at the University of Pittsburgh and is a professor of surgery, immunology, computational and systems biology, clinical and translational science, and communication and science disorders. Dr. Vodovots, I should say welcome back to Regenerative Medicine today as you did a podcast for us back in January of 2007, number 25 as a matter of fact. So welcome. Thank you. Glad to be back. So as I know, and perhaps some of our listeners know, your interest and focus is on modeling and use of inflammation in terms of predicting wound healing. Tell me why inflammation is important in the consideration of these subjects. The wound healing process is a complex process of events that's set in motion, obviously, by the injury. It could be set in motion by an acute injury. Most of us think of a cut or obviously a bigger trauma, but it could also be a slower process that's set in motion by a slower insult, some degeneration or degradation in the tissues. Inflammation is basically the way the body tells itself something about the nature and the magnitude of that injury. So we can think of it in very simple terms as being proportional to the amount of injury or the size of injury or the degree of injury that you've had. And even though we always think of inflammation as having a negative connotation because it's typically associated with pain or dysfunction in some fashion, the reality of it is that you need to go through this phase of inflammation in an appropriate way and in a way that's shut off appropriately in order to deal with this injury that you've had. So to give you an example, the best way to shut off inflammation is to use steroids, corticosteroids. If you give corticosteroids in most open or chronic wound settings, you will get a very detrimental outcomes where the wounds just won't heal. And so that's a very graphical example. It also happens if you, for example, have a radiation injury. Radiation will cause cells to stop being able to divide, and it's typically going to impact inflammatory cells that are rapidly dividing right following an injury. Again, irradiation will give you a wound that will not heal very well. And so you need to go through the signaling phase in an appropriate way. Now, the problem is that you might end up in a situation where the inflammatory response to a particular injury is much greater than it should be, or not enough. It could last longer. It could be of a higher magnitude. It may be kind of getting modulated by your genetics or by the way the therapy is being applied for whatever the nature is of that injury, in which case inflammation can now become detrimental. So now inflammation would be driving the maintenance of a bad state, say a chronic non-healing wound will typically have many hallmarks of ongoing inflammation. So that's, I think, what's been confusing to people that tried to think of inflammation in a linear way, meaning the worse it is or the more you have, the more of a particular outcome you should have. The reality of it is inflammation doesn't work like that. It's, it's a prototypical nonlinear response where you might have more inflammation but actually create a worse outcome. You may not have enough inflammation and have just as bad of an outcome. So thank you. I think that helps set the stage. 
As I said at the introduction, one of the techniques that you've been working on and matured significantly since you were with us last time is the prediction of drug trials on using modeling. And I know that inflammation is an important aspect of that particular modeling process. A little bit later, I'd like to learn the status of that technology. But perhaps before we get to that, can you tell us a little bit about how you model the performance of a drug or a proposed drug on a computer? When we first started out, we reasoned that we needed to use computational models that were mechanistic, meaning that they were trying to reproduce the biology that was driving the inflammatory and associated wound healing responses. And we typically focused on using equations because that's the most mature technology that's out there. It's been around for a very long time for doing that type of computational simulation. In the interim, we have worked really hard to try to integrate this type of modeling with the kind of data that you're likely to get nowadays. So as platforms for obtaining highly multiplexed data have come about, so these are platforms that allow us to get many readings about many different inflammatory mediators. We struggled with how to integrate those data into these kinds of simulations. The the type of simulations that we had been making were driven by, essentially, by what we knew about the process. We put together straightforward biological interactions in these computational models. And so there was no obvious way by which you could say, okay, what if I get more data, then what do I do? What if I start measuring 50 mediators at the same time for any given time point? How do I integrate that into these models in a rapid way? There wasn't really a mechanism for doing that. So we developed a framework based on existing tools where we try to start from multiple time-dependent readings of a particular inflammatory wound healing process, and then use so-called data-driven modeling approaches that can give us ideas about the principal mediators and also about how those mediators are interconnected. Try to identify uh, feedback loops in the data using these types of approaches. From that by itself, we can already get a very tangible outcomes. So for example, When we look at data from cells or especially in people, we see a high degree of variability if you use standard statistical analyses over time. And that makes it very difficult to differentiate across outcome groups, for example, or across treatment groups, let's say, if they're treated with a particular drug, as you mentioned. These data-driven tools have been able to distinguish patient outcomes and also to come up with new mechanistic insights about how the biology of inflammation plays out. Now, that's exciting by itself because it may have diagnostic relevance, for example, in certain diseases. But we want to be able to go much beyond that. So we say, okay, if this is relevant and we've identified core modules, core mediators, then we take it to the next step, which is to make the kinds of mathematical models we were making all along using, though, the information that we gained from the data via this intermediate of data-driven modeling. So really what this does is it creates a process flow, a kind of roadmap for how to go from a large amount of data down to the relevant parts of the data that we get from these data-driven modeling approaches. And then we test the validity of those interconnections, first by making real 
mechanistic models that say, well, we think this is how biologically these patterns of data come about. And then, of course, we have to validate those simulations, as we always have, against new data and so forth. And so what we have now is, I think, an ability to bridge the gap from big data, if you will, at least medium-sized data, all the way to mechanistic understanding or knowledge, which, of course, then precedes the, the next step, which is to make some sort of modulation, some sort of therapy based on that knowledge, based on that rational approach. So you just described what I would characterize as a multidimensional, multivariable analysis. And I presume that the traditional or classical way of doing this is with laboratory studies, animal trials, human trials, and so forth. If that's a correct presumption, it seems to me that there's orders of magnitude difference in the time and the cost of doing it the old way versus your way. I would say that that's a principal criterion that we think is in favor of this intermediate of using modeling. Because precisely as you said, in theory you could try to do every possible experiment, measure every possible thing at every possible time point. But even though the costs of doing these things are now cheaper than they were some years ago, still it's a very expensive and time-consuming endeavor. Not to mention, in the clinical setting, probably not feasible, maybe because of ethical reasons, practical reasons, number of patient reasons, etc. But the modeling brings an additional dimension in that you can use the modeling to tell you in advance what time points you should be looking at, what mediators should you be looking at, some predictions about what might the patient characteristics be that you're actually seeking in the larger patient cohort. There's the possibility of creating individualized models so that you might use new experimental paradigm where you're getting a lot of dense data from fewer subjects rather than getting less data from many subjects and then using standard statistical tools. You could also get to the point where ethical considerations come into play. In the case of animals, you could say one of the goals is always to reduce the use of animals. Computational models that help fill in some of the gaps that you would otherwise get through animal research could help in that regard. And then, of course, in the case of clinical studies, if you can reduce pain and suffering, if you could reduce patient size by using computational tools, even so far perhaps as to reduce or maybe even eliminate someday the placebo group from trials where computational tools could do that for you, that would potentially be a really tremendous advance. So what's the status of this technology? How mature is it? Well, as you know, I helped co-found a company here called Immunetrics, and they've been working in the pharmaceutical space now for nearly 10 years. In my interactions with the pharmaceutical and biotech industry, I think this basic approach is fairly firmly taken a hold. Disease modeling is now something that most companies are doing. Some of the outcomes of that, of course, remain proprietary because we just don't know until the results are released from any company what was actually done using modeling. But this whole field of what is being called quantitative and systems pharmacology has emerged where the traditional pharmacokinetic, pharmacodynamic type modeling, which is based on equations and based on mathematical principles of biodistribution of drugs, etc., are now being married to disease models because of all the considerations that I mentioned before. Still, I think we're here in my group ahead of the curve with regards to how to integrate the data into this process in a fairly direct fashion. 
I think that there is this concern, or if you want to call it some sort of a divide between the people that advocate purely big data and algorithms to use statistical associations between another piece of data versus the people that want to only collect those few pieces of data that are needed in order to vet, validate, calibrate uh, mathematical models that are based on mechanism. I think somewhere in between lies the strategy that I was just outlining. And I think this is very practical even for the pharmaceutical industry because it integrates what they're already doing, which is to get a lot of high content and high throughput data via an intermediate of fairly straightforward to understand modeling, but delivers on a payoff, which is a disease model, which is where they're going anyway. And so I think that these approaches are now poised to really transform the way the pharmaceutical industry works. Because again, they're faced against an ever-shrinking pipeline, ever-increasing costs, fewer drug candidates, etc. So this is the movement in terms of the pharmaceutical industry as it relates to drugs. Is this technology applicable to things like tissue engineering? Oh, I think so very much. If you look in the tissue engineering literature, you will find already some fair number of mathematical modeling-related papers. Bioengineers especially tend to be very quantitatively oriented people, so they're naturally applying this type of methodology. If you browse through the literature, you will see papers that relate to modeling, for example, the elution characteristics of drugs from a scaffold and how that might affect a a biological process. There have been papers out there about modeling how stem cells differentiate and with some sense of trying to predict what cues they could be provided in order to cause differentiation of stem cells to go in a particular direction. I think, though, that what hasn't happened yet is blending of that type of modeling with the true disease modeling. That's, I think, an area of a lot of opportunity. Dr. Votaboats, I want to thank you for sharing this update in terms of your pioneering efforts. We will post on the podcast website a link to your website for those that are interested in exploring this in more detail. I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine that sponsors this podcast series. We welcome suggestions at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And until we meet again with another interesting interview, thank you for listening.